Good morning. We're in trepidatious microphone country this morning. So I, I might get some feedback on this sermon earlier than I planned. It, it never fails, that one. It's the oldest sound joke in the world. And it's a sure winner. Um, I have a short notice before I start, um, which I should have given earlier, but I wasn't paying attention. Um, we've had a request come through to the office. If anyone's got um, a room free in their house, obviously in their house, not just anywhere, um, we have a, a young intern coming to London who's got nowhere to live for two weeks, and she's paying to live in a travel lodge. So she's willing to pay some money. I, I realise it's holiday time and new wine and all the rest of it. It's the worst possible time, really, apart from Christmas, maybe. But if anyone's got anything, can you come and see me, and I'll go and print out the email, and we'll sort out the details. It's for a couple of weeks, and she's actually arriving in London today. So it's a little bit kind of, you know, one of those. Um, good morning. My name is Barry. I'm all over the place. And um, I want to talk to you about Psalm 34. Uh, if you've got it in front of you, um, it will probably um, help um, and enhance the experience. You always read it if you get fed up listening to me, if nothing else. But this is a marvellous psalm. It's, um, I, in my reading, it, it says it's one of the most quoted. I don't know how you measure that. It must be somebody who's got a job to go around counting psalm quotes or something. But um, apparently it is one of those ones that people just trot out, often without knowing which psalm it comes from. I will extol the Lord at all times, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, and and th- those sorts of phrases that we use quite regularly <laughs> don't necessarily where, know where they come from. And on first sight, it's a very simple psalm of praise and exhortation to always keep the Lord in your heart and mind, pray to him about everything, and that he always answers and delivers the faithful and um, slays the wicked and all that sort of stuff. The problem is, if you've got a Bible in front of you, you'll look at the top, it's got what's called a superscription, a little mini heading, which says this, of David, that means David wrote it, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away. And he left. And you think, all right, there's probably more to this psalm, maybe, than meets the eye. Have you ever pretended to be insane in front of it? Or have you ever used that excuse, I'm only pretending to be insane? Something happens in David's life here, which is probably worth reading about. And the thing I want to say about this is that, obviously, you can read it purely as a piece of poetry, as a piece of exhortational literature, and it works at that level. You know, if, if actually you are in distress today and you need to cry out to the Lord, this comes to you. This is for you this morning. And you don't need to know anything about David or Abimelech or sundry other people whose names I will mispronounce in the next 20 minutes. But this psalm is for you. This is the word of the Lord. If you were good Anglicans, you'd have just said, thanks be to God then. I just thought of that, but anyway, you're not, so you didn't. Um, the Psalms are, however, grounded in real life. There's a story behind them. Um, it, it, he's not just trotting out uh, um, uh, songs for his record label here, uh, David. He's writing out of his heart and experience. David's Psalms, in particular, are grounded in a life, in a personal life, his own personal life, that is checkered 
and flawed. My middle name is David, and um, no, it really is. I don't mean that in the sense of you know, my middle name is punctuality, or my middle name is, you know, people say, no, it really is David. And I have had an interest in him from a very young age, because I thought, you do, don't you? You know, if you, your middle name was Muhammad Ali, you'd be interested in boxing, wouldn't you? Um, but I was interested in David, and I've read, read it and read it, and I thought, he's a biblical hero, but he did that, and he did that, and he did that, and God still loved him. And really, that's the summary of the background to this psalm, is that no matter where you are, or what you've done, or what your flaws are, of which you will be only too well aware, the mercy and grace of the Lord is infinite, and not dependent or lost because of those things. Whatever your past, whatever your present, whatever mess-ups you've made, or will make in the future, I'll make that point again, I'll put my mortgage on it, not that that's very big anymore, but I'll put it on that it's not as big as the mess that David makes in this story. Okay, we'll go through that in a minute. David is described as a man after God's own heart. If I had that on my gravestone, what was my next sentence going to be? I'll rest easy? No, I'll be dead, won't I? But I'll be quite happy. If someone could say Barry was a man after God's own heart, no matter what, that would be good enough for me. David turns his troubles and afflictions and also his own shortcomings into praise to God and into an increased dependence on God, a reliance on God. So the things that happen to him which are bad, and some of them are his own fault, increase his reliance on God and turns his heart upwards and outwards instead of inwards and downwards. And that's the key to this psalm. So let's talk about, we'll talk about the psalm first, just for two minutes, and then the narrative, which is, which is the more interesting bit. Sometimes the way we do something is in itself expressive. So when um, you guys play or sing a song, you do it harmoniously, don't you? Sometimes, yeah. And that is, you do that deliberately because that is the right way to do it. That is excellence. And that blesses everybody else. And there's a form of perfection in the way a song is written. There are rules, aren't there? There are kind of guidelines. And, 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 and if you break them, you either, either you're a genius or a rubbish musician. You know? and, and sometimes the, the boundary there is quite hard to see. Um, this is a poem, or a song, or both. And it's written in a certain structure. Uh, it's one of those ones where in Hebrew, each line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? And, it, and technically that's called an acrostic psalm. Okay? You can look that up if you want to. It's a literary device that just expresses form. And is, it, just as you have in a harmonious tune or a rhyming poem, this is a form of perfection that says, even in my structure, I am good. The trouble is, there are one or two lines where it's, got, it's wrong. It doesn't follow the structure at all. So there are one or two where it doesn't follow the Hebrew alphabet. And this is David, the master psalmist. He's got it wrong. One or two verses don't fit. It's almost as if the psalm is saying, I know what perfection is. I'm not 
I'm still going to praise the Lord. There's a kind of inbuilt, deliberate flaw in the structure even of the poetry that says, in my imperfection, I'm going to praise God and I'm going to do it really well. Because I'm going to be the most quoted psalm in the, in the Bible. Secondly, let's come to the narrative. So that's, that's just David's little subliminal point of saying you don't have to be perfect to praise God. The message of this psalm is that trusting in God to hear our cries works whether we are a complete mess or not. We don't have to earn it. Our lives are a collection of triumphs and failures every day. And that's what this psalm is all about. And I want to say that as a comfort to someone here who is uh, judging themselves and maybe underestimating God's grace, or someone who's outside the faith and think that being inside it is all about being good enough. Both of those things are totally contrary to everything you read between those two covers. That is not the grace of God. So what do we know about David? What's the first word that comes into your mind if I say, David, Goliath, you win the prize. Yep, we know about Goliath, don't we? The big moment in David's young life. It propels him from rural obscurity to military hero, the hero of the nation. Trouble is, the king, whose name is Saul, is viciously jealous of this because renown in warfare is a pretty important thing if you're a king in those days. Not so important today, but it was then. And the women were singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul has to hear this and somehow deal with it. And he doesn't deal with it because David's popularity has overtaken his own and that's undermining him. So Saul tries to kill him. So we're in um, 1 Samuel 19. If you've done Bible in a year, you'll know all this. You'll memorize these verses. So I'm just, I'm just doing this for everyone else's sake, okay? Um, Saul tries to kill David. And David now has to deal with this situation where he's in and out of the king's court with a king who's having a bit of a nervous breakdown, probably, and trying to kill him. David's choice at this point is different to the choice he made when he faced Goliath. When he faced Goliath, he goes into him and said, you've got a sword and a spear, I've got the Lord God of hosts, and I'm going to take you down. And he did. Faced with Saul, David resorts to deception and lies. And he does so time and time again. He gets his wife to deceive Saul about why he's not at the meal table. He puts a, a dummy in his bed, a bit like, you know, classic sort of Hollywood tactic, so that when the assassins come, he's not in it. Um, he asks Jonathan, his best friend, to lie about his absence from court while he escapes. And although all these things are understandable on one level, this deception becomes a way of life in David's thinking. And you know, later on, this isn't even the big sin. What's the big sin of David? Bathsheba. This isn't, we haven't even got there yet. This happens later. This is before that. And you can see the pattern. David is a deceiver. And he relies on that to save himself. David runs away. Now, there's no other way to pronounce this, so I need to be very grown up, okay? To a place called Nob, N-O-B. I could call it Nob, but it's not called that, okay? Um, where a group of priests reside. 
And the, play, and the guy there is um, called um, Ahimelech, and the priest asked him, why you have come? And David is on the run, and he says, the king has sent me. I'm on a mission from the king. Give me some food and something to fight with. An odd request, but the priest says yes, okay? And he gives him the consecrated bread from the, um, uh, from the place of worship there, and he just happens to be the custodian of Goliath's sword. He said, well, it's the only weapon we've got here. Have that. David's um, whereabouts becomes known. He knows he can't stay there. So he flees, of all places, to a place called Gath, which is where the Philistines live. Right? Goliath was a Philistine. Okay? He was their big champion. David killed him. And he flees for safety to his enemies. And he's carrying Goliath's sword, and he's David. And he thinks he cannot be recognized, right? So there's, what a tangled web we weave, you know? David is, um, his very source of fame has now become his greatest weakness. His face would be known, um, and he's carrying Goliath's sword. So in order to escape murder or execution, he pretends to be crazy. And that's the background to the psalm. From there, he knows he can't stay there either, and he flees from the Philistines, and he ends up in a place of exile, a cave called the Cave of Adullam, to which we will return. But here's where the story gets sinister. Remember the priests in that aforementioned place? Saul follows David to that place and says, Where's David? And he discovers that the priests helped him. The priests helped him in good faith. Saul believes that they conspired with David, so he slaughters them. Eighty-five of them get murdered. And it says there that in the city of Nob, the people were put to the sword. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. How many hundreds of people died because David lied? And in 1 Samuel 22, 22, David realizes this is all down to him and confesses it. How many messes in your life compare to that one? This is what is technically known as a real huli. This is bigger than Bathsheba by a country mile. And none of us really know about it, unless you're reading Bible in a year. This is massive. And David writes this psalm, having been delivered, saved, and restored from that, half of which is entirely his own fault. Three quick things. David in this psalm puts out a right mindset. He says in verses 1 to 3, I will continually praise the Lord. My praise will, his praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Because God is always merciful and always gracious, no matter what I've done. He's saying that he will now have an attitude of God-oriented praise and prayer. And that will become his state of mind. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean to say that you walk around literally praying all the time. It means that that just becomes your state of mind. You give everything to God. 
I think it's okay to pray for parking spaces and buses. I really do. But that gets you into the habit of committing the big things to God before you need rescuing. And that's David's point. (coughs) Committed to him beforehand, time and again, in my life, calling out to God has become deep and meaningful only when things have gone wrong. And frequently when they've gone wrong because of me. The second thing is this. He promotes the fear of God, not the fear of man. He says, come to me, my children, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. You see where that comes from? He's saying, I've learned that the hard way. Don't lie. Trust God. There is so much temptation in our lives to pursue pragmatic, short-term solutions that we are in control of. And why does David lie instead of trusting God? Because he is afraid. At the root of this, he's fearful. And wouldn't you be, really? I mean, I'm, I'm standing up here. I've got a lectern and a microphone. I can say what I like, you know. It's easy to criticize David, isn't it? When you're fearful, you do funny things. So he says in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And I think that's one of the keys to life, to let God deliver you from your fears. He says also here in the, in the, in the same psalm, you know, the righteous will have their troubles. You will not have lives that are perfect and clean and nice and neat. But the Lord will deliver you from your fears. Fear is a controlling thing. It makes you do what seems right to you at that moment and not necessarily what is actually right. Our self-sufficiency or our desire to be so is rooted in fear. It's in being afraid and the need to see something visible happening that you are in control of. And the life of faith is the opposite. It's a call to trust in the unseen, to really know that God is at work in these things. And thirdly this, in our weakness and humility, we actually become strong. Things that happen in life to convince us that we are totally dependent on God can be blessings in disguise, though they never seem like it at the time. You remember that, I don't know if you know this, Winston Churchill loses the general election in 1945, having saved the country from the, you know, the Nazi horde. And uh, the, the country reject him and vote someone else in. And his wife says, well, you know, it could be a blessing in disguise. And he says, well, at the moment, it's very heavily disguised. <laughs> All our crises look like that, don't they? At the time, they look heavily disguised blessings. They don't feel like it. But they can bring you to this place of dependence on God. David ends up in this place called the Cave of Adullam. I've no idea what it was actually physically like. But the Bible describes it in 1 Samuel 22. Um, His brothers and his father's household heard about it and they join him there. So it brings his family together, this crisis. And then interesting, look this. All those that were in distress or debt or discontented gathered around him. And he became their commander. Before David could become the king of Israel, before he could start the royal line that would end in Jesus... David becomes the vagabond king. He becomes the king of the castoffs. 
He becomes the Lord of the outcasts, of the rejected, of the indebted, the miserable, and the frightened. See, the kingdom is a place for flawed people. It's a place for people who've learned or had imposed upon them humility and distress and have learned to use their shortcomings to direct themselves to God and not to themselves. David knows by now he has feet of clay and he's reliant on God. Let me, let me finish. David is not delivered from the hand of the Philistines because of his righteousness, but because of his relationship with God. David fears the Lord and is saved by him. When David sins through his deception and violence, it reveals that he's allowed that fear of God to wane and replaced it with the fear of man. And from that point, things start to go wrong. But God graciously delivers him not because of his righteousness, but because of his relationship. The two are in relationship. David is a man after God's own heart. And because of that, David's fear of God, his reverence for God, and his trust in God is renewed. And not only can he praise God, but he can exhort others to do the same and urge them to experience the blessing of God in a richer and fuller way.